The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way we all work and live, and it's brought the conversation of health and hygiene to the forefront. And while we rely heavily on health practitioners to have an active role in educating, informing, and empowering us on hygiene and wellness, there's now a new expectation for brands and corporations to do their part in sharing ways to live a healthier lifestyle as well. With 60% of prosumers signaling they expect their favorite brands to offer health and wellness information that they can rely on, we explore the recently published Havas Prosumer Report, Health and Hygiene in a Post-COVID-19 Era. In this episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast, Linda Descano, Executive Vice President at Red Havas US, examines the report with one of its authors, Marion Herstel from Havas Agency, BETC based in Paris. Listen to the conversation to better understand how to navigate these important conversations in a post-pandemic world. Then, stick around for a red questionnaire. This month, we welcome Rachel Sansone, Managing Director at Red Havas UK. But first up, Linda Descano will get the discussion underway. Hi, Nancy. Today, our roundtable segment will explore the findings of a new Havas prosumer report called Health and Hygiene in a Post-COVID-19 Era. This report explores how the pandemic has and continues to change expectations regarding health, the medical community, and brands. Um, joining us for our conversation is one of the authors of the report, Marianne Herstel uh, from the Havas agency, BETC, and Marianne is joining us from Paris. Welcome to the Red Sky Feel for Thought podcast. Hello to all of you. Before we jump in and talk about the findings of the report, would you set the context for our listeners and define what a prosumer is and why uh, we study them? Sure. Uh, in fact, we study prosumers for more than 20 years now, and we identify them by a set of uh, questions so that they are predictive of what the mainstream population will answer to our questions within six to 18 months. So they are predictive. So when we look at them and see a big difference between the prosumers and the mainstream, just mean that the trend is gaining ground and will get higher to the prosumer level for all the population. And for this particular investigation that you did of health and hygiene in the post-COVID-19 era, you surveyed more than 15,000 people from across 31 countries. And as we talked about on our pre-call, COVID-19 was a global event, um, a really unprecedented magnitude, right? It's impact on human life its consequences on the global healthcare system, how the scientific community was mobilized and and the partnership that was required between public and private enterprise to address the human health needs. And while we all experienced this regardless of where we lived, clearly reactions in the response and in the recovery have differed widely country by country, in some respects, community by community. So maybe tell us a little bit about what your findings showed. Yes, thank you for starting with that point because you're right. And it was one of the most striking thing that this study revealed. Usually we see differences by age groups, 
prosumers, mainstreams. This time, the biggest differences were uh, within each country. So it's very interesting that this event is global, yet when we compare countries, and to be, to be honest, we've, we've kept comparing ourselves since the beginning of the pandemic. We compare victims, we compare number of vaccinated people. But what was interesting is that when you compare the cultural background, it is also very different and it may explain the difference of behaviors uh, towards vaccine, for instance. So just a few, a few facts. Uh, if you look at the level of trust, and level of trust in the vaccine is very important now, we see that in Czech Republic, in France, in Ukraine, uh, more than 50% people will declare, I don't have faith in the vaccine. Whereas in China, in India, in Mexico, it is only 10% of people. So you see huge differences, differences that you, we usually uh, don't see in these reports. Uh, and it is important because trust um, is very uh, uh, important in the process. And uh, uh, it is one of the things that is key in the way people will get vaccinated. And when we looked a bit deeper, we saw that um, uh, the level of distrust was really linked uh, not only to the rushed elaboration process of the vaccine, but to a deeper distrust in the institution that promote the vaccine. So for us, that was a, a first key striking element. For instance, if you want in US, 45% of people don't trust the leaders and 21% don't trust the pharma industry. In France, the distrust towards the the pharma industry is 35%. So we see here big levels of distrust. And the second element that was for us the most striking is this idea that to win the war against the vaccine, are we engaged in a kind of collective responsibility? And it was quite interesting to look uh, in the different countries. And today, yesterday, I was just looking at videos of the countries who are promoting uh, today the supporting their vaccination. And some really uh, feature a strong way to rely on collective responsibilities, whereas some others only talk about personal benefits. Just as okay. an example, uh, when I ask the question, uh, would you get, would, would you, do you think that people who don't get vaccinating are putting society at risk? we see again, huge level of differences. For instance, Mexico, Brazil would say, yes, if I don't get vaccinated, I put my country at risk, which is my motivation to move forward will be a collective uh, um, responsibility. Whereas France is uh, around and below 20%. US is around 50. So again, this is quite important because today when we address younger part of the population, their benefit personal benefit may not be that big. So their decision will or will not rely on this sense of collective uh, responsibility. So these are the two most striking, I would say, uh, elements of the report. Those are really interesting. Thank you for sharing those. And you know, when you think about the, the collective responsibility versus the personal benefits, I guess that will have a long tail effect on what's the relationship between hygiene and health going forward, like, will our behavior continue to 
to change? And will it, it sort of, will we be more sensitive to issues around health and hygiene going forward? Um, did any of your data provide indications of how people are thinking and how they're approaching a more of a back to normal life and social interactions and going to restaurants and theater and concerts? Yes, it's interesting because today, once we pass that uh, key moment, people will go back uh, somehow to normal life. And the first thing that struck us is that we realize, all of us, huh, that we are surrounded by uh, germs. We can say that COVID, for 83% of prosumers, heightened our awareness and aversion to germs. We see them more or less everywhere, huh, on every surface, every clothes, in the air. We, we talk about cussing attacks. Huh? If someone starts cussing in the subway, everyone looks at him like if he was a terrorist. So we see that there is this kind of raise of uh, awareness of germ. And in fact, 80% of people declare that after the pandemic, they will pay more attention to keeping their home clean, for instance, uh, which means something interesting. Cleaning is not only about uh, having your house in a good, um, good state. Now, cleaning is related to health, which is a, mm -hmm. a very important uh, new way to consider the essentiality of cleaning, because I might die of not cleaning properly right. uh, my house, right? Uh, which means that now people are getting quite obsessive with cleaning. And in fact, we have data and we see that cleaning obsessive persons now are seen as models. Whereas before they were pointed out as a big boring person, we have 85% of <laughs> who declare we pay more attention to keeping a clean home as part of my regular health regime. So you see this, we are going to become more, I would say, uh, uh, hygiene, uh, hygiene freaks. But, and you were talking about that, how does it impact our social relations with each other? And it's very mm -hmm. interesting that in some countries, more than others, people surely they want to work towards the more hygiene, uh, hygiene behaviors, but they are also worried of uh, um, raising concern about hygiene uh, anxiety. And in fact, when we asked, uh, do you think that having a strict uh, hygiene rules, sanitary and hygiene rules, is depriving us from the spice of life, uh, like touching and kissing and things like that. Again, we have huge differences among countries. France, for instance, would say, yes, it's depriving me from the, the spice of life at 77%, which is quite big. Whereas in US, it's only, I would say, closer to 50%. China is around 48%. So again, big differences on what will be the sacrifices we will be ready to make in order to uh, achieve these more healthy behaviors. And maybe some countries are less ready than others to make these uh, big sacrifices. And that's definitely going to have some profound implications for companies and organizations that you know have a brick and mortar presence, right? Whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a retail store, a theater venue, a concert hall, 
um, it's it's definitely we're going to require additional adoption, right, to meet the ongoing needs and concerns of the consumers you're you're trying to engage and bring back um, to to your 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 store, um, you know, um, your physical space. Yes, I was talking about the fear of coughing attacks, huh? like people who start coughing are seen as terrorists today, uh, especially if they don't wear a mask. But it's the same. I was talking with uh, one of our big clients, uh, uh, and they were saying that today, um, checking the um, sanitary or the cleanliness of the surface is like a crime scene. You know, when they come and we have this blue spray that mm -hmm. All the blood, uh, all the blood. So you're almost in that situation. Like, is it a crime scene? How can I spot the places I haven't checked? Uh, how can I be sure I made the right checking? What is the right level of killing germs? Should I kill all the germs? Uh, what is dangerous? What is not? So it is interesting that people will ask uh, uh, companies uh, first to, of course, clean more and more deeply all surfaces. I talk about restaurant, public transportation. For instance, we have here a figure from our prosumers. We asked when we are past the pandemic, I will pay more attention to the cleanliness of stores, restaurants, public transportation. Uh, and Chinese prosumers would say yes at 85%. American, 74, which is very big. France, 49, which is like, you know, Yes, but I, I want to go back to normal life more than anything. And in one of our previous studies, we also had asked people what was the thing that for them was the most um, difficult during this period. And in some countries like France, Morocco, Spain, they would say the loss of uh, social interconnection. The thing they, they had had the most difficulty to face was that they couldn't have social interactions and this is the reason why now today they are going to rush out to have these social interactions and maybe uh, at the depend on uh, some security rules so how will people behave is a very difficult thing because it will depend on what the level of sacrifice you want to make and also when we talk about social interactions it depends on with whom and for instance, people will declare with my family, I don't want anymore to have any uh, specific uh, hygiene rules. I want to behave normally. The close circle, as, and, and we see also that this is the most dangerous circle because it's a circle in which you behave yourself because you know them, because they are close, you feel you're safe. It's the circle where the most uh, uh, important level of contamination happens. Then you have the second circle, which are my friends. With my friends, I'm ready to make certain uh, specific gestures. And then you have the outer circle. And for this circle, I'm not willing to make any sacrifice. So what's the role of company? I would say guidance, uh, help guide them with what are the good rules. Because uh, as you saw, and as I stated in the first part of the study, people don't believe anymore in many countries that their government institution has provided clear rules 
and they don't believe anymore that these rules were the right one. So it's interesting that brand can take over their, that role of information and uh, education. And of course, also providing the right products because we look at products today and we see a lot of campaigns we state, okay, it kills COVID-19 bacteria. So uh, this kind of uh, elements, which are very, very clear, is becoming more and more important. And it's not just changing right, the expectations of where we buy our groceries and where we do our shopping, but it's probably changed all of our expectations in, in terms of even our healthcare. So what are you seeing about the shifting expectations? What do they mean for the future of health? And are there particular countries or companies that are really leading the way? Yes, because we are facing a specific moment, but it's also revealing uh, things that we're already uh, moving uh, in society regarding health. Uh, trust was already, and distrust was already there. The, the fact that some countries are more collective than others are already there. So we tried to go one step further and beyond the COVID ask people, you know, what is the type of healthcare that you would want in the future. And the first thing, and maybe the very important thing that every country shared is this first figure, and it's very high, um, that yes, health and economy are closely related. So that's, that's quite interesting, huh? because we had health on one side, economy on the others. Today, um, everywhere in the world, there has been this uh, uh, high level of awareness that the uh, health institutions are key regarding the economy of the country. So that's the first element. Then the second element, we try to understand who do I trust? Who do I trust in my new health routine? And interestingly, uh, even though some countries will trust more than others, the pharma companies, People trust their, uh, uh, their uh, primary physician. And they are the one that people trust the more on any kind of advice. 65% in France, uh, globally more than 60 in the US, same. So people trust their uh, primary physician. Uh, I say that if I compare with my pharmacist, uh, it's 1%. Uh, with, um, health-oriented online communities, it's 2%. So you see the physician is at the core of this uh, system. And we ask them, okay, but so what do you expect from this physician? And here we start seeing a strong desire uh, for an important change. 76% of prosumers and 59 of mainstream, you see the big difference, which shows that the trend will be growing in the future. So 76% of prosumers say, I expect my doctor tomorrow to behave more like a health coach, paying attention to my overall physical and mental wellness, rather than just coping with illness, disease, or providing me just with uh, treatments. So it's interesting that we understood that our doctor was not just there to deliver uh, pills, but more advice helping me stay away from uh, uh, the disease or from the, the COVID. And today we expect them to behave like health coaches. So it's quite interesting also because we asked, okay, but what do they need to do that? 
And people obviously declare, it's important that my doctor knows my health record, my family history. Here we have 71% in France, 61 in US, average 65% with quite an homogeneous situation across the world. So we all expect our doctors to behave as coaches and for that, they need data. To go back to your question, what is interesting in this report is that everyone expects the same shift in practice, but no one is ready to back this shift in practice by data and tech. This will be a mm. major difference uh, across uh, countries. And you have what we call the health traditionalists, France is among them, and the health disruptors, US, China, are among the health disruptors. To give you a few examples, uh, if I talk about the telemedicine, for instance, uh, the health traditionalist would say lower than 25%, I intend to use more telemedicine. In US, it's 63%. So it's a huge difference, a huge difference, same as in China. The relation with data. Uh, okay, uh, I, we asked um, uh, to use big data in medicine will make it easier to identify risk factors and prevent diseases from developing. So yes, I think big data is a good thing for medicine. US 52, China 64, France 29. So again, Europe is much less inclined to use big data in order to identify risk factors or same kind of figures to use big data in order to provide uh, personalized tailored treatments, which mm -hmm. means what? Some countries will move forward uh, very rapidly because they have their population behind that is in a, a positive mindset towards big data for the sake of better uh, prevention. And some people will have more difficulties because their population is not that enthusiast. Another thing, and it's always on the same, uh, same kind of uh, ideas, we asked, okay, um, who would be willing to, to get to use health tracking uh, devices? And sometimes as far as implanting a microchip in my body. So implanting a microchip in my body uh, to monitor my data uh, is quite a big decision. In US, 21% people would say yes. In China, 29, which is a big part of the population if you, if you consider the, the effort we're asking. In France, in Europe, it's less than six, 10%. So again, all these technological developments have a kind of consumer target, I would say, in some business uh, uh, opportunity in some markets, whether in other markets, there is no business opportunity today, which means that research invest, but we don't know what, where will these uh, findings find uh, um, uh, their, uh, their, their business uh, or their population. So it's quite interesting. And the last one is about editing my DNA, which is mm -hmm. study for a long, long time. And we know for a long time that China is the head of everyone. And we, we said I would be willing to edit my DNA to protect my children from potential disease. Because the first thing you want to do is to protect your children. China, 41% say yes. Uh, 
US 36, which is quite big. France, Switzerland, Belgium, they are below 10. Again, it means that all these scientific developments have in US and China a potential market. If mm -hmm. you're a researcher in France, you can be a very good researcher, but you don't know uh, where this will uh, be used. So you need to export uh, your research to either uh, China uh, or, or US. So it, it changes completely uh, the context according to what the population uh, is ready to accept in terms of uh, a shift in, uh, in the medical, um, uh, medical practice, right? It, it's just fascinating, particularly when you talk about the, the changing expectations around your primary care physician to be more of a coach, right? And, and about more prevention and long-term wellness. And that has you know, implications for, for how they're trained, not only in their skills, but then how do they just engage with people? It's, it's a very different exchange, but also when you think about other, um, other brands that, that provide wellness services, you know, it, it's really about contextualizing your product and service, you know, with a new mindset around my long-term health and wellness. And it's not just physical, it's mental. It's a very holistic approach and it's almost like, you know, brands and, and companies that operate in that space have to really make that connection and, and, and speak to this new mindset. You're right. Just as we are not expecting our doctor to give us a pill, we are not expecting brands to give us a product. Uh, it's right. the same. Huh? A product is a minimum they can do. But today we go from product to service. And, and we expect brands to be more holistic in the service they deliver. So the product is there, but what do you do beside your product to help me change my behavior? Uh, and it is very uh, important for the pharma industry, but also for the brands uh, who are more in the uh, detergent uh, industry, the cosmetic industries. What do you do to help me change the way I behave in terms of hygiene or in terms of health, because I know that I have to do something, but I'm not sure what. Uh, it is the kind of service I expect uh, from brands. In closing out your, your report, um, and as, I, as uh, we, we discussed on our pre-call, many of our listeners lead communications and marketing organizations for, for, for brands. Um, you know, for nonprofit organizations, for companies. So as we bring our conversation to a close, um, what else are the three or four things that they should be thinking about to build more meaningful relationships with, with consumers in a post-COVID-19 marketplace? And you, you talked about it, not just to think about the product, right? But it's the, the service um, aspect of it. Are there, are there two or three three uh, other pieces of advice you would offer? Yes, um, I think today it's a matter of empowering people. Uh, we, we, we compare the way we need to change. We, we say it's a journey of change, which means that there are steps in the journey of change and brands uh, are here to help me go through that journey of change. Uh, it starts with basic, basic things like information. 
60% of consumers say following my, the pandemic, I expect my favorite brand to offer health and wellness information and advice I can rely on, which is huge. I just want them to help me understand what's going on. And it can be true on hygiene, cleaning, health, uh, uh, immunity. So all of this will require much more information as I don't want to be caught as I would quote during that pandemic in a kind of helpless, childish uh, feeling that I know nothing. I just have to believe the first one who talks. I want now mm -hmm. to become more uh, in charge of what's going to happen next. So the first side is information. The second element is education. Um, for instance, 77% of prosumers tell us, I expect cleaning brands to offer tutorials, new services that help me manage my home hygiene. So again, I used to have like just these products with, you know, uh, killing germs very strongly or all this. But now it's not enough because I have doubts. Do I, do I things right? Do I do things right? Uh, mm -hmm. Are there germs that are left that I didn't see? Um, how far should I clean? So I really expect education and tutorials on things that before were obvious. Today, nothing is uh, obvious uh, anymore. Uh, the last level was empower, of course. I expect my favorite brands to help me track the cleanliness, empower me to know, to know if I did right, to know if I did wrong, to make a check. I want to be able to check the air in my apartment. I want to be able to check my table. Uh, in the office, same. So how do you do you empower me to become my own uh, checker and not only rely on some uh, basic things I did? I don't know if it's the right thing. Not the, so that is very important. And the last one we felt is interesting is inspire. Because as I said earlier, these people who were uh, uh, obsessed with uh, hygiene uh, were seen as, uh, oh, this person is, uh, you know, is boring. She's obsessive about cleaning. And we need new models and it's inspiration. We need new models who are at the same time, people who live their life free, who have social relations, who have a nice home and yet who are more careful about the level of hygiene and cleanliness of their, uh, of their surrounding and the, the level of health gesture that they do to protect themselves. So it's, it's new models that we need to show as positive, uh, uh, inspirational, and that we help people say, oh yes, that may be a behavior uh, more interesting that, than I believed before. So I think these are the four things, inform, educate, empower, and inspire. What a terrific way to um, wrap up our, our conversation. Marianne, thank you so much for taking the time to share the highlights from the report and a link to the report will be available in our show notes and i hope you will come back um, after the next prosumer report and uh, continue to share your insights with us okay thank you very much for all the for all the questions joining us for the red questionnaire this month is rachel sansom managing director of red havas in the uk Rachel is a comms leader and brand reputation expert with over 20 years experience. She is well recognized for her creative campaign work,
both in-house for leading brands such as Motorola and Random House, as well as agency side. She's confirmed as a PR judge at the CanLion Creative Awards this year and is also included for the second year running in the PR Week Power Book. So, Rach, thanks so much for joining us for this month's podcast. We have a few topics to cover today, so let's get right into it. Thanks, Shiloh. First up, can you tell us a bit about your very first job and what that experience was like? My first job was so long. Well, actually, technically, my first job was while I was still at university. And the local paper, the Extra Express and Echo, which was quite a big regional paper at that time, wanted to set up a supplement because Exeter is a big student town. So I actually applied to edit that and, and got it. So and I sort of knew I wanted to be in PR. So I did that for two years when I was at university. So actually getting some proper experience under my belt before I went into PR was kind of great, to be honest with you. Now I look back on it, I kind of realised how great it was. But I think I'm so sort of young and naive, I just kind of did it at the time. Yeah, but I'm sure really great to sort of have that, you know, editorial experience before actually jumping into the world of PR. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always just meant that, I mean, throughout my career, as I mean, obviously, we work in so many different channels now, but it's always just given me that little edge in terms of what will make a story and what won't, which has always been very useful. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess jumping a few years ahead from, from your newspaper days to today, how do you like to work and how do you encourage your team to work? Are you an early riser or someone who, you know, burns the midnight oil? Well, I have two kids, so I try not to do either. Um, I think basically, I think my whole ethos in terms of pace of work is I like to work really hard from 9 to 5.30, if at all possible, and then kind of disengage and, and spend time with my children. So um, that's kind of my pace of work ethos. But I think in terms of how I like my teams to work, really, I think I just try and give everybody as much freedom as possible. You know, it's okay to make mistakes. I really try and build a culture where I'd rather people try to innovate. You know, if it doesn't work out, then that's absolutely fine. And employ like motivated people who kind of just want to crack on and get on with it and kind of want their freedom as well. And I think if you can sort of create an atmosphere where people feel that they have got freedom, they can create their own agenda, they can kind of build something that's important to them as well as just generally working with some fabulous, you know, individual people, then hopefully that builds a really healthy team culture. Yeah, definitely. And I guess we've started to see that in your team, you know, over the last two years since starting up in London, definitely growing from strength to strength there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm super proud of the team. So um, as you know, we started two years in London from literally scratch. And, you know, we've grown very considerably in that time with some fantastic clients like Manpower Group, American Express. And, you know, uh, it, I think what's been fantastic for me as a leader is the opportunity to really shape something from scratch um, to ensure that we get that kind of healthy culture that I was just talking about. And I think also, ultimately, anybody who's joined over the last two years is really a founder of the business. So I'm hoping people feel invested in, you know, how we develop and grow moving forward. Absolutely. And I guess just touching on that point, you know, on the culture piece, you mentioned spending time with your two kids is obviously really important to you. And, you know, we've obviously had a really tricky year. So I know that you've managed to sort of organise a few staycations with the family in the UK over the last year. But is there a country on your bucket list that you, you know, love to tick off once you're able to get travelling again? 
Well, there is. I've been there before, but I am, I, and you know, I'm desperate to get back to India, which makes what's happening there at the moment, you know, quite sad for me personally. But I do just, I, I absolutely adore India. It is so spiritual. It's so challenging. It's so many different things, but it definitely impacts you in a positive way. So I'd love to go back there when things are, you know, a bit more settled. And, you know, I really kind of wish the best for that country as they move through you know, an incredibly challenging time with the pandemic. Yeah, India's a, India's a great one. I um I didn't expect you to say that one, actually. I thought you'd pick sort of, you know, a beachy vibe in Europe. But, um, yeah, I love India too. I went, I think, in 2018 um, for the third time. Yeah, it's such yeah. a beautiful country. It's amazing. Amazing. No, India's definitely where I want to be. Love it. So let's now pivot um, to social, which is obviously a big part of our day-to-day -day in the PR world, but it's also an avenue that is really growing beyond belief, particularly in light of the pandemic and remote working. Who do you think is really nailing social media right now, be it a brand or an individual? And do you have a favourite person that you follow? <laughs> Great question. Um, well, firstly, who do I think is nailing it? So I think a lot of brands are very nervous of TikTok. However, I think those that have really embraced it have shown how powerful it can be. I'm particularly thinking of CeraVe, which is a, a kind of moisturising brand. The whole brand was built on TikTok. They launched it on TikTok last year. It sells out in boots. So I think that the way that they utilised TikTok influencers to really push that brand was unbelievable. And I, I know in our client base, there is a lot of nervousness about TikTok. And, you know, I can understand that given some of the confidentiality issues and ownership issues, etc. However, I do think it is actually very, very powerful commercial platform, depending on the audience you're trying to meet. So I'm not going to call out anybody who's particularly nailing it. But as I said, I think those brands that have managed to enhance, you know, sort of utilise TikTok for their own purposes are doing really well. In terms of who I follow, variety of people. I, I also, like, luckily, because my daughter's 12, she's very on the pulse uh, of social media. So um, she's uh, signed me up for Charlie D'Amelio, who's one of the biggest TikTok influencers, has got a huge following, which is kind of, I guess, my pop culture hit. But um, actually, in terms of who I follow, it's very boring. There's a company called Retrovirius, who are an interior design company, who are my, like, dream interior design company. So I actually get very excited every time they post something on Instagram. I'm also a very big interior design fanatic, so <laughs> I'm glad we can do that. <laughs> exactly. So now onto media, I guess. What is one headline grabbing your attention at the moment or one that you feel should really be at the forefront of the global news agenda right now? I think the, well, I think the headline that, you know, none of us are out of the uh, pandemic until we're all out of the pandemic is one that shouldn't be forgotten. I think it can be very, I think it's going to get very easy once the Western countries have, you know, progressed sufficiently with their vaccines to forget about the less developed countries. But A, obviously, ethically, that's wrong. And B, we're all going to be at risk while that's happening. And, you know, really, that is the biggest thing going on in the world. It affects everybody. It affects every business. It affects our business. It affects our clients. So, you know, I hope that, you know, we do see through NGOs, the UN, governments, etc., some, um, you know, some kindness in terms of ensuring that, you know, spare vaccines and that there is, uh, there are programmes like the COVAX programme that the UN are running to ensure that, you know, the, the less developed world get, get immunised as well, basically. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think vaccinations are super important right now and I'm super excited to get mine soon. <laughs> You've had yours. I've had mine. Not long, Shiloh. <laughs> Great. Well, finally, after an unprecedented year with three lockdowns in the UK, what's your message of encouragement to your team and those listening today for the year ahead? I think that, do you know what, what a lovely question, and I'd never really get the chance to say this in a, in a large forum, but I think my key message to everybody is just live your life currently. I think if if COVID has taught us one thing is that life can be very short. Um, so I would definitely say to the team, go and live your life. I would say to my clients, and I think it's really important that we all get the most out of, you know, out of the frankly amazing texture that is life moving forward. Oh, that's a lovely way to end. I think so too. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. It was lovely to chat to you and hopefully we can speak soon. Great. Thank you, Shiloh. Thank you for joining the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights and trends from the team at Red Havas. Please make sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and more. Don't forget to rate and review today's show. We'd love to hear from you.